Before I read our scripture, I want to introduce uh, our guest preacher. We have a guest preacher this morning. We're excited to have a guest preacher. Uh, Dr. Reverend Un K. Strasser is the co-vocational lead pastor of Make Aloo, which means presence in Hawaiian. Uh, it, is a missional, it is a church with missional communities multiplying in Honolulu, Hawaii. She is also a community physician and an executive leader at the V3 Church Planting Movement, which is where we cross paths, and so she's become a friend over the years. Um, she is the author of an upcoming book, Centering Discipleship, a Pathway for Multiplying Spectators into Mature Disciples is coming next year. Prior to transitioning to Hawaii, she served as adjunct professor of medicine at the Philadelphia College of Medicine and uh, of African Studies at her alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, where she and her husband Steve, also with us, served with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship after she finished her Fulbright scholarship at the University of Dar es Salaam. They have three amazing kids. That, uh, I'm sure Un will introduce herself a little bit more, um, but she will be preaching from Mark chapter 10, and so let me invite you to stand as you're able to reverence the reading of God's word. Today's passage is Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit internal, eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The di disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for Un. We thank you for how she will uh, unpack the scriptures for us. God, we pray that you would give us the ears to hear and the hearts to receive. That you give her your anointing. That you would speak through her. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
I thought I really wanted um, Matthew and Lisa and Justin Fung to move to Hawaii to be a part of my community. Forget them. I want Jocelyn to come to Hawaii and be a part of my community, do an Advent choir. What in the what? This is why I can't visit churches, because I want to steal all your people. This is what happens. Okay, I'm just going to put a picture of my kid, my family up if we can. My name's Eun. Uh, Justin Fung is the first uh, leader, pastor, remissioning pastor, marketplace leader, community leader, whoever pronounced my community names right. So give it up. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. This is my family. There's Steve without some sort of face paint on, but uh, he's the hero of our family. We have uh, uh, three kids, teenagers. We don't call them kids anymore. Um, and we're just trying to shove them out the door. You know what I mean? We just want to shove them out the door. It's been a long time. You know, 20 years of marriage. It's been a long time. Um, but uh, one of the things I've been, the, the passage that, that Justin just read, the part that I love is when Jesus is like, oh, you know, the things that you feel like you've given up, you know, brothers, sisters, homes, like you'll gain like a hundredfold more um, in the kingdom of God. And I've been traveling for almost 20 days now away from these wonderful human beings because of book stuff or, or connecting with leaders and things. So I like love that part of this passage, you know, when Jesus is promising like all the things that you feel like you have given up. I tell you, as part of the kingdom of God, you're going to get it in return. I'm sleeping in Matthew and Lisa Watson's home. Look, I gained a home in, in Washington, D.C., you know, proof in point. Um, I wanted to take a note in what uh, Pastor Justin said last week. Um, just as a reminder, he said one verse, one passage, one saying, one inter interaction does not equal the whole. It's a data point. It's not the whole picture. As the saying goes, a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. That means you can use pretty much any verse you want to say what you, uh, to say what you wanted to say. Now that's the best thing I'm going to say today, so if you want to take note, just remember it's quoting Justin Fung, not me, okay? Um, I just wanted to give a little uh, context to today's um, passage. Um, I'm really glad I didn't get last week's. Imagine if like a complete stranger came and talked to you all about marriage and divorce and the kingdom of God. I'm, thank God I picked this week to come, you know? <sighs> I just get like the rich person, you know what I mean? Thank God, right? Um, but I wanted to, to take a note from what Justin said to place this passage, because I actually think that Jesus is talking about something a little bit more than just you know, an interaction about wealthy people. It's really easy, I think, in, you guys are in urban settings, multicultural, to just be like, ah, this isn't for me. I'm just gonna be ta uh, thinking about the other people, you know, the wealthy people in like Georgetown. You know, but it's not. That's not who Jesus is talking about. So I want to place it in context um, on purpose. Um, so um, the author, um, Mark, he actually, th this, this, this account, the, the Gospel of Mark, is the first written account of the full story of Jesus. It was actually writ written um, after uh, most of the epistles that Paul wrote the letters to, to the churches were after. This is placed after all those letters. So the only written kinds of things were Paul's letters prior to this. So um, John Mark traveled with, with Paul, traveled a bit with, with Barnabas as well, and then now he's collecting all of these stories. The only time that he says anything is in that very beginning where he just kind of frames and intros the, the, the whole book, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the chosen one or the anointed one who is the son of God. Um, if we want to put up all oh, those, oh, thank you so much. 
Okay, thank you so much. Okay, um, so if we kind of think about where this particular passage is placed, we're going to put it in the middle. So the beginning part, we can do the next slide. <coughs> so Act 1 is Mark 1 through 8. You guys have already gone through this, right? And you're trying to uh, think about what's the question that, uh, that, that um, people are kind of uh, thinking about and who is asking the question. So the beginning part of, of Mark is who is Jesus and the crowds, the large crowds are, are asking it. The second part where, where our passage is on, this Act 2, is that second part of Mark, Mark 8 and into this chapter that you guys have been camping on. What does it mean that Jesus is the chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the person we're, we've been waiting for? And this whole section is about the disciples. These are the people who have been asked to follow. They've been following him. These are the people who is asking this question. And then Act 3 is going to be um, how Jesus actually uh, becomes king, and then everybody's asking that question, okay? So the next slide. So the thing that we're going to be camping on is this part. So we have to kind of look at this passage through this lens. Who's asking this question? It's his followers who are asking this question. And the question they're asking is, what does it mean for the disciples that Jesus is the Messiah or the Anointed One? So we're going to keep that on because I tell you this is not about wealthy people. This isn't even just about ch uh, little children, okay? The other thing about this passage, um, if we go to the next slide. So around, um, you guys have been, this, it's so great when you do book studies, right, together. Everyone's kind of going in. But the trouble is most of us think that one passage is the only thing we should be thinking about. I just want to have our, our, our brains to kind of go a little bit wider to think, where is this placed? So this particular passage about the little children and uh, the conversation with the, with the uh, uh, rich um, um, man is around this. So there's little children, but right before this passage, Jesus already talked about the little, little children. So in chapter 9, he says, he took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me also. So there's something about, he's repeating it. Whenever a fast-paced book and the shortest gospel, you know, is, is repeating something, you want to pay attention to it. There's something about the way that we as followers need to think about what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah has to do with the kingdom of God and its connection with little children. The next thing is like this last shall be first. He said it again, and he said it actually prior to this, right? In chapter 9, he said, um, sitting down, bless you, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. So this is something, again, he, he just said it. In the next chapter, he's saying it again. There's something we need to pay attention to, what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means that Jesus cares about this. And then the two bookend pieces um, that happens right before and right after the passage that we're looking at is the question of who was the greatest, and Jesus predicts his death again. So who is the greatest? People, are, the, the disciples are mumbling this. In other accounts, you know, James and John asked their mommy to go and ask Jesus about maybe, you know, you can put in a good word for me, you know? So there is this concept of like the, the disciples themselves are really wrestling with, you know, who's the greatest of them all? They're not getting a point about little children. The last shall be first that Jesus is constantly repeating. And all of this is tied around why does Jesus keep predicting his death? He predicts his death three times. And it feels like the disciples are still not getting it. Um, next slide. So the thing that we're kind of thinking is, what does it mean for his disciples that Jesus is the Messiah? 
um, one of the things that we want to see is, you know, Jesus is telling his disciples about the kingdom and the king. And it also means that Jesus is uh, telling his disciples what the kingdom of God is like. And you're thinking in a big picture, right? And he's trying to tell them what it means to follow the king, okay? So some easy things that we, we can pull out, right, is um, uh, about the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God is received like a child. These are, thi I think, concepts that, that for folks who have uh, walked with Jesus for a long time probably have been a part of this community, understand, right? The kingdom of God reorders people who we think ought to be first or often last, who we think ought to be most marginalized the last, ought to be treated first, right? The kingdom of God denies proximity to power, and the kingdom of God is about self-giving love, that, that prediction of his death, right, uh, about this. But, again, the, th the question that the, the disciples are asking a lot is, who is Jesus, right? Mark 8, this, this middle section starts with Jesus asking his disciples, okay, who do you say that I am? I understand what people are saying about me, but who do you say that I am? So this question, if you kind of read through the passage, right, after, after Jesus' interaction with the, with the rich um, young man, and he, go, he leaves crestfallen, right? And then they're just like, oh, he couldn't give up his wealth. What a jerk, you know, or something, right? <laughs> and then that interaction, to me, what stood out, because my brain is thinking, what are the disciples thinking about who Jesus is? That's the most important question in, these, in, in this middle section, right? Why were they amazed twice? Verse 24 and 26, the disciples were amazed two times over in one interaction. What do you mean a person who is wealthy can't, uh, it's going to be hard for them to enter into the kingdom of God? What do you mean by this? Who then can enter the kingdom of God? Who then can uh, have proximity uh, to the king? The disciples were actually amazed because their thought, if you do the next slide, because they thought power meant access to the kingdom, and through the kingdom, they were going to gain, uh, 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 be given access to power. Why were they amazed two times in one interaction with Jesus? It's because they were thinking about the kingdom of God and proximity to the king as something to do with their proximity to power or access to power. Um, next slide. What does it mean for his disciples that Jesus is the anointed one, is the king to come? Next slide. Their answer is they thought following Jesus was their way to gain power. So if you're asking the question, what was it? Why did Jesus say to the rich young um, a man you know, to give up, give up all his wealth? It isn't something that Jesus says to every single person, right? Um, the key is he's like, you know, part and part of your wealth and then give return. And, you know, he like made a little bargain with him, right? Not everybody has to do that, right? But what was the thing with the rich young man? And probably the thing that he's trying to teach his disciples. Part of uh, uh, entering into the kingdom of God or knowing something about this is that you're actually trying to let go of your desire for power. Um, uh, next slide. I don't know if you know who this man is, but I'll just give you some context. 10, 33, 41, 47, 56. And the Powerball number is 10. $2.04 billion, the largest uh, Powerball jackpot in the history of the entire globe. And it won through a variety of people. But this, uh, this gentleman, his name was Joseph Chahayad. 
He is a Syri Syrian immigrant in the 1980s, so we immigrated to this country at the same time. And um, he was super smart. He won a million dollars because he sold the winning ticket. So his thought about, you know what, I don't need to win $2.04 billion. I'll win a, a million dollars because I know how to gain a sense of being a part of the Powerball, right? So I actually think that Joseph Chahayad is a really good example of what the disciples probably thought Jesus was like. If I just have a little connection with the Powerball guy, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not asking for $2.04 billion, you know? I just want a little bit. I just want to be a little bit a part of the, this Powerball jackpot because I know there's going to be a return. I might win a million dollars because I sold the winning ticket. You know what I mean? So we're trying to think through what is it that Jesus is trying to tell his disciples about who he is um, through this. I'm not saying every disciple is this handsome, handsome man, Joseph Chahayad. I think I'm thrilled for him, FYI. <laughs> um, so ultimately, following Jesus in the ways, ways of God's kingdom has a lot to do with how we deal with power, giving up of power, and how we think about power dynamics. I'm going to first do the thing that I think it's... Um, easy for all of us in this context, what we think about. Um, when we think about po um, power and its uh, connection with culture and society, we awful, often think about money, sex, and power. Richard Foster says money, sex, and power. He said those words. I was really uh, thrilled that Richard Foster said the word sex, but yay! <laughs> money, sex, and power. He says no issues touch us more profoundly or universally. No topics cause more controversy. No human reality realities have greater power to bless or to curse. No three things have been more sought after or are more in need of a Christian response. The thing about power is that it, of any kind, power dictates our motivation, our identity, our purpose, our decision-making, our community, and our worship. That's the thing about power that Jesus, I think, is trying to contend against. Um, when we think about the ancient world, we think about how different, um, in their context of, of talking about powers, um, they're not talking about um, money, sex, or, 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 or authority, power. They're thinking about other gods, right? There are gods of fertility, agriculture, weather, or war, right? Um, it was a belief that any of these things were probably for my better good than Yahweh God, right? That's what who Yahweh God was contending against, right? And that sounds like just an ancient ideology from an ancient world, but when we think about our own culture today, we can easily see that any of these kinds of gods, whether it's money, sex, or power, or authority, are still at play. If you look at um, any city, any town, any village, any sort of community, you can see through uh, what, peop what people put their resources into, social media, what's the, what's the biggest news on the newsstand a magazine, most of our desires as a culture and society boils down to sex, money, or power. So different things to contextualize. Uh, money, so Forbes 2021, wealthiest DC people, I'm sure you all know who these people are. Number one is Jeff Bezos. Take it or leave it, it's true. Um, Jacqueline Mars, the Mars candy lady, at 31.8 billion is, is the second wealthiest um, in DC. And Ted Lerner, owner of the Nationals, sorry Steve, I had to bring them up, Steve's a Phillies fan, uh, 4.7 billion uh, net worth. Money brings with it opportunity, choices, comfort, access, freedom, but how people utilize it can also bring about stripping away or exploiting other people's opportunities, choices, comforts, access, and freedom, 
right? This is why money has a lot of dictating power, right? Uh, let's say, uh, take sex. Oscar Wilde says everything in the world is about sex except for sex. Sex is about power. Um, Michelle Kaufman and Julie Pulleritz, they wrote in um, a pretty landmark book on call, called Power and Close Relationships. Um, sex can provide pleasure and outlet for expression of identity and desires, enable reproduction, but it can also be used as a negative, negative expression of power. We have known about the potential negative consequences of the intersection between gender, sexual power, and risks to one health and well-being for some time. However, relationships between these variables and poor outcomes continue to be identified across multiple cultures and contexts. Sex can bring about desire, beauty, commitment, pleasure, collaboration, and reproduction, but it can also bring about dominance, harassment, human trafficking, an inability for personal agency, less equity, and sexual and gender-based violence, right? Um, Tarana Burke from Me Too uh, movement, globally, uh, they state that one in three women ex uh, experience some sort of domestic violence in their lifetime. And throughout the pandemic, in the last three years, um, from the Lean In group, Cheryl Sandberg's work, that number actually went up to one in two in just the past three years. Okay. And then lastly, money, sex, power, power meaning decision making, um, authority. We think probably in, in your guys' context, you know, um, politicians, business executives. Um, uh, uh, Srila Letha Sagi, he writes in uh, the International Journal of Management and Humanities, power can be defined as the ability of one party to change or control the behavior, attitudes, opinions, objectives, needs, and values of another party. Um, and when you think about it, power or the decision-making power can bring about flourishing for everybody around you if you're given that authority or you can use a decision-making authority and power to just have your own self-gain and exploit a lot of people or become really, really divisive about who can have things and who can't. Now, remember, power dictates our motivation, our identity, our purpose, our decision-making, our community, and our worship. So what was Jesus trying to talk to his disciples about? Something to unlock what the kingdom of God is and what it means to follow the king. His disciples are probably very poor, except for maybe one dude, right? They gave up everything. Peter even said that, right? Fishermen weren't regarded as really, really high, you know, ranking uh, status uh, um, uh, acquired people, right? So they kind of already understood these parts, right? So I can't imagine that Jesus is only talking about people who have power and status in the culture today. I think that Jesus is actually going one step further in this. Um, let's see what slide. Uh, can we put up the next slide? And the next slide. So what feels like the hardest thing to give up in following Jesus is power, right? The next slide. So culturally, we just went over that. Uh, uh, we should just flip through. Giving up power in, from a culture and society standpoint, it's money, sex, and authority. Next slide. But I think Jesus wants to get to the heart of it. What does it mean to give up power for us as personally, right? Pressures that grip our identity and purpose. I want to be certain things. Next slide. I want to be really popular. I want to be really productive. Or I want to be really, really powerful. I think these kinds of powers, these powers in our culture today probably grip us more than, than many other things. If again, power is defined as something that dictates our motivation, our identity, our purpose, our decision-making, our community, and our worship, 
if Jesus is not that power, or the kingdom of God and participating in it is not the thing that dictates our motivation, our identity, our purpose, our decision-making, our community, and our worship, then something else is. And if you can't relate to any of the money, sex, power, authority, decision-making stuff, then it's, you're still not off the hook. Because Jesus actually wants to contend with our hearts. Something is constantly competing against who he is and his love and will for us, right? It probably is one of these three things, right? If you think about uh, I want to be popular, right? It's things like this. Now you just kind of go a little bit more confessional, a little bit more true to who, you know, things that we probably, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll probably admit. Having certain relationships. We want to be loved by certain people. We want to be regarded by certain people. Being afraid of confrontation or conflict because we're afraid of how other people will, will, will see us. And we don't want to uh, sort of rock that boat. Being networked into certain classes of people, not associating myself with, with certain people, looking or presenting myself in a certain way to others for fear of what they may think of me. Unwilling to move towards others in need because they're not of certain status or certain relationships, right? That desire to be loved or liked or popular or get hits on that social media is a real thing that I think Jesus wants to contend with because it's a power that, mo that, that um, dictates our motivation, our identity, our purpose, right? How we worship, who we worship with, who we consider community, right? Let's take uh, productivity. I desire to be productive, being able to be efficient, being driven by accomplishments, feeling an urgency to succeed, disqualifying others because of their incompetence or laziness, believing that I'm better than others because I'm a person who gets stuff done, believing I'm unsuccessful because I can't get things done, unwilling to pause my own agenda for others because people are just interruptions. That's a powerful power that dictates how we make choices what our identity is, what we choose to do, who we want to worship with, you know? And lastly, um, I desire to be powerful. It really has to do with having control over my life, having control over maybe other people's lives, you know? Gaining positions of influence for the gain of myself and those I choose, having authority or, or a voice in decision-making, being known for my ability to be listened to where my opinion matters a lot, never choosing to appear, to appear weak or unable, unwilling to step aside from my role to give others a chance for fear that they may gain more control and more say. So if the money, sex, and, and authority pieces don't jive with you, I bet some sort of pressure or desire to want to be liked, to want to do, or want to have some sort of personal agency and control over your life, I bet that that hits somewhere with every single person here, right? I think this is the stuff that Jesus is actually trying to get to, right? The kingdom of God entering into it, participating into it, following the king, actually has to do with giving that stuff up. Are we able to let go of that kind of power? N.T. Wright says, a new sort of power will be let loose upon the world, and it will be the power of self-giving love. This is the heart of the revolution that was launched on Good Friday, on the crucifixion. You cannot defeat the usual sort of power by the usual sort of means. If one force overcomes another, it still is force that wins. 
Rather, at the heart of the victory of God over all the powers of the world, there lies self-giving love. The redemptive power of Jesus, and I think the thing that as, as you know, the scriptures move into now, how does Jesus become king? When the disciples are thinking, oh my gosh, he's going to go get, kick, kick all the Roman soldiers out of Jerusalem. That's why we're going to Jerusalem now. In chapter 11, no, he doesn't do that. They're so amazed and surprised what happens at the cross. Jesus gives himself up. And he's trying to teach them that the whole thing about the kingdom of God, how it operates, what it means to follow the king, is can you give up your power? But the promise is this, that, that the redemptive power of Jesus, our relationship, our connection, us keeping our eyes on him, following him, actually does this. If popularity, being loved, liked, all of that, is what competes in our hearts, when we look at Jesus and we look at him for, for the thing to, to, to come and replace that power over our lives, it's not about erasing our own identity or allowing others to slander or, 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 or speak um, poorly of us and our rep reputation goes, goes down the drain. It has nothing to do with leading us into shame. That's not what Jesus is about, right? Jesus is not about erasing your identity, right? But it's uh, in looking at Jesus, and loving and trusting about what he says, about who you are, that you are more loved than you can ever imagine. You are more loved than you can imagine. You don't need any other likes. You don't have to be popular. You don't have to be good looking. You don't have to prove yourself, none of that. You are more loved than you can ever imagine. The redemptive power of Jesus and his self-giving love in the context of productivity if you are saying that Jesus will actually be the one who competes against that power over me, it's not that we become undisciplined people, or it's not that Jesus demonizes accomplishment. That's not true. Um, but it's in looking at Jesus and loving and trusting his way of work that we understand that work is like worship. That work is like worship that establishes flourishing for everybody around us and not just myself or, the, or, or just a handful of people. And your work doesn't uh, measure your worth. That's what happens when Jesus' redemptive power comes and breaks that other power of productivity. And lastly, um, if power or control is the thing that competes for your heart, when we look at Jesus and love and trust his control um, and his work of using power to serve others, we get so much rest and comfort in knowing that somebody else who is better at everything than me is in control, and he's also for my good. Uh, before I close this in prayer, um, I would love to share a little bit of a story that why I wanted to come to this church, actually, uh, and connect with you all, because in um, 2020, the, the beginning of the pandemic, you know, the whole world shut down, uh, everybody was freaking out. We all still kind of are, right? Um, but in that, that, that time, it was when I learned about Matthew Watson making that decision, ah, oh, just gonna make me cry, um, uh, uh, about understanding and thinking about power dynamics. Um, the whole world witnessed George Floyd's death at the hands of police officers. And at that moment, um, if every church did not start to ask questions about power dynamics, then I knew that that's the church that I did not want to partner with. That was the number one question that I started asking leaders, leaders around. And in that time, I felt really, really um, 
hopeless because I thought that maybe then the kingdom of God is not going to come through churches if people and leaders are, aren't willing to have these conversations. And then lo and behold, I hear about what you all were going through and about power dynamics. And it was the first time that I heard that um, a white male leader gave up his own power so that he can share it um, with other people. And I had never seen that kind of exchange to have an um, Asian American man uh, step into uh, equal power of leadership. Look, I've been around the world. I've never seen that in my lifetime. And I just wanted to pay attention to it. So this is the hope, I think, of how we experience the kingdom of God. It's being faithful to one another and being faithful under leadership that does that. So I just, I know it was a while ago, but I get to have a chance to like really applaud you guys in your work. Um, and I think more beautiful things happened and you guys have been able to understand and see glimpses of the kingdom of God because of, of that decision and all the decisions that have followed. So thank you, thank you for existing, every single one of you in this community and not being gripped or, or pressured by things that will take claim of our hearts, but really following Jesus in his way. Can I pray for you? If you can uh, open your hands as if you're receiving a gift. Jesus, power sucks. It's really, really, really a hard thing to try to let go of because once you get it, in whatever form it is, whether if we feel like we're super popular or we feel like we're being really productive or we feel like we're, we're in more control, whatever form that power has over us, it really, really is hard to let go of it. But Jesus, you tell us that in order to follow you, we have to let go of it. I thank you that you exchanged uh, that kind of power with self-giving love. That in self-giving love, we'll transform into people who are no longer thinking about our own identity, but the, but the beauty and, and, and dignity of other people. That through the power of self-giving love, we're going to no longer be people who are trying to so hard to accomplish, 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 but we'll be, be people who are actively accomplishing things for for other, for the sake of the city, for the sake of our neighbors. And through your self-giving love, we'll become people who don't desire control or worry about not having it, but we'll be able to give ourselves to your control, your good, faithful, beautiful, justice-filled, merciful kind of control that will learn from you. Jesus, we pray most of all that you will be the God, you will be the king whom we choose to follow, who will be the most po popular, the most famous of ev everyone out there. That you will be the one who accomplishes your work here on this side of new creation. And you will be the one who has control over all the things because you are out to redeem all of it and restore it. So we're so thankful for you, God. We're thankful that we're able to follow you. Help us to be disciples who follow you. In your good name we pray, amen.